Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country that is as divided as our country has become. And today, I want you to hear from somebody who I think is not trying to divide us. <laughs> He's somebody who, from his own uh, point of view, is at least trying to bring us together. I had a conversation with Senator Tim Scott. Now, as you know, I'm a Democrat. Tim Scott is a Republican senator from South Carolina. He's one of only three black senators in Congress, and he's the only black Republican in the Senate. He's got a new book out. It's called America, A Redemption Story. It's about the hardships that he faced early on coming up and how those experiences have really influenced his outlook, his direction in life, his politics. You know, so far in his political career, Tim Scott has gotten Donald Trump on board, on the one hand, with investing in lower-income communities through Opportunity Zones. But he's also worked alongside, you know, liberals like Senator Cory Booker and Representative Karen Bass on stuff like police reform. The truth is that the human heart is, is flawed, period. It's not a Republican heart or a Democrat heart that's flawed. Jeremiah 79 kind of answers that question for us. We're all flawed, and the question is, how do we address the challenges that we see? So he is somebody in the Republican Party who knows how to find common ground, and that's a big part of his brand. He and I have actually worked together on a bunch of stuff, including criminal justice reform, and we certainly don't agree on everything. But I think it's important for you to understand where he is coming from. And that's for a very specific reason. Tim Scott has a big political future ahead of him. I think he is the most likely Republican to be on the ticket in 2024 as either president or vice president. And therefore, people need to listen to this guy and hear where he's coming from. Now, during this interview, if you're a strong Democrat, there might be times in this interview, I want to warn you, that you might be saying, Ben, interrupt them, disagree with them, take on what he's saying, don't let him talk, challenge him. I did not do that in this interview. I want you to know because I want you to hear him fully. I want you to really pay attention to his positions on immigration and on police reform because this is going to be a voice you hear a lot. Also, I asked him some interesting questions. I asked, does he miss Donald Trump? He answered in a way I thought was very interesting. I also asked him what advice he would give to Kamala Harris, who frankly has a job I think he's gunning for right now, vice president. And he gave a very, very interesting answer there. I want you to just check all that out. I want you to check him out and think about what it would mean if the Republican Party made more space for people who think like Tim Scott and have backgrounds like Tim Scott. I think that would be great for the country. I think it'd be very scary for Democrats. Looking into the future, I think Senator Tim Scott is going to be a much bigger part of our lives than he is right now. So if you're a Republican, take heart. If you're a Democrat, take notes. Stay tuned to listen to my conversation with Senator Tim Scott after this break. This episode 
is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you. And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Senator Tim Scott. Always good to see your face. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I could not have my first season of Uncommon Ground without you. <laughs> I had to have you. You know, as a Democrat, we like you and we're scared of you. <laughs> we're, we're scared of you. Come on, man. You can't be afraid of me and like me. Uh, <laughs> true, you have to explain true. that a little bit. Uh, explain that to me. <laughs> well, you, you, because you have appeal across the aisle, because you take on African-American issues in a very different way. And uh, one of the reasons why I think some people are thinking, is this dude going to be on the ticket? You got a book out. Yes, now, sir. Some people, <laughs> some people put out books because they just want to make the world better. But some people put out books because they're planning on doing something higher. Let's talk about the book, and then we'll talk about what it means to the body politic that Tim Scott has a book. Uh, what's this book? Well, the book is called America, A Story of Redemption. The book is really about getting a second chance at life, whether it's in your faith, whether it's in politics, business, or just in life, generically speaking. Why I wrote the book is because I have literally have challenging situations, whether it's nearly failing out of high school as a freshman, failing world geography, civics, Spanish, and English, because I was so disillusioned about hope. I was so angry about life and felt like there was no chance for me to realize my dreams that I gave up on myself. And I think so often we need to remember that failure or defeat is sometimes just a delay. And in the pages of the book, you'll hear and read about people, not just myself, but others who have met with defeat that really became a delay and it led to our greatest victories. You'll find in the book that sometimes the mess that we see in our lives gives us a message to preach to others, making us a messenger. And you'll hear in the book on why it is as an African-American who's been stopped more than 20 times by law enforcement for driving while black, while I'm still an advocate for police reform and thinking that most police officers are trying to do their job. So I try to tell the whole story, and it's probably one of the reasons why people like Bishop T.D. Jakes has endorsed the book, and Derwin Gray, another great pastor in the Charlotte area, as well as folks like former Democrat Congressman Harold Ford Jr., and Bob Johnson, the founder of BET, and, and so many others on the other side of that, on my side of the aisle as well, 
endorsing the book because I try to tell the whole story that we see America in the challenging times that we've had, but also we have hope that America is the solution, not the problem. So I want to kind of move to that higher ground conversation yes. about you know your party, the Republican Party, about the country, what your vision is. Why do you think that African Americans should give the Republican Party a, a new look? It's almost been an oxymoron <laughs> uh, for a while to be like a quote unquote black Republican Absolutely. and still speak with the passion that you speak about justice. Yeah. Um, why do you think that black America should give the Republican Party as you see it a, a second look? Well, I will say that I think our community should look favorably at the Republican Party as they look favorably at any political decision based on the individuals in their states or in their congressional districts. I'm not going to suggest that the GOP, the great opportunity party that I think we are transforming into, should be the home of all African Americans. That would be silly. But what I do think is that there are candidates within the Republican Party that have earned the right to run with their heads held high and their shoulders back and ask African Americans to consider voting for our party and for our candidates. Let me give you an example of why. From 2016 to 2020, one of the things that you see that we produced was the most inclusive economy the country has seen in my lifetime. We created 7 million jobs. And of those 7 million jobs, two thirds went to African Americans, Hispanics, and to women. We also saw the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the African-American community at 5.6%, I believe it was under 6%, the Hispanic community around 4.2%, the Asian community around 2.8%, the overall community around 3.4%, and a 70-year low for women. You saw us focus on HBCUs. So I, I say that by measuring the number of dollars that we put into the pockets of the HBCUs and the letters of thanks that I received from the presidents of HBCUs when I started the fly-in several years ago to uh, have all the chancellors and presidents fly in to have a conversation about their priorities. They say that it was the first time in the history of their HBCUs that they were ever invited to Washington for a sit-down powwow. I partnered with Miss Alma Adams in the house as one of my partners and Mark Walker to make that happen. So we created the idea and then we shared that with our friends on the other side of the aisle because we believe that it's important for us to have a bipartisan coalition who supports HBCU. So we were able to take the funding to the highest level in the history of the country. We were able to put a billion extra dollars because of the pandemic into HBCUs as well. Myself and Chris Coons, we continue to work on ways to make sure that whether it's our military, whether it's historical buildings, that we continue to provide more resources into the coffers of HBCUs who are sometimes giving our kids the last chance or a second chance at a college education. I think a lot of people may not know when you say HBCU, you mean historically black colleges and universities. Often people people just say black colleges, but they're black colleges, they're also universities, so we say HBCUs. Absolutely. And one of the things I, I want you know, to give you a chance to reflect upon is the time period you're talking about with all this good work, and you, you haven't gotten yet to the Opportunity Zones, which you also uh, were, were a champion on, um, and many other issues. This was during the Trump yes. administration, when a lot of African Americans were very concerned about the direction that he was going, and yet you were able to get some positive progress done. wasn't celebrated or talked about maybe enough at the time. I just wanted to hear from you, why were you able to get some of this yeah. stuff done in a period where you have maximum polarization, you had daily upsets going on, you know, a lot of stuff was happening in the White House had never been seen before, and yet you somehow were able to find a way and make a way out of no way. Why were you able to do that? 
Well, Vance, sometimes the pain of defeat leads to the thrill of victory. And I'll say it like this, the Charlottesville debacle, the pain and the misery of suggesting there were good people on both sides, and my critique of the president and the suggestion that I made on HBO Vice that he had compromised his moral authority led to me being called to the White House, to the principal's office, so to speak, to the Oval, and and into a conversation with the president about why I was criticizing him. And that conversation turned into a pretty healthy relationship because I didn't hold my punches. I said what I meant, and I meant what I said, but I said it in a way where he was willing to listen to me. And it was in that meeting that, with great deference, he said, well, Tim, help me help those I have offended. And I didn't say issue an apology because it wasn't that important to me. I said, let's do something that will manifest for generations in marginalized communities. And I offered him opportunity zones as the one thing I thought he should support so that we brought more resources to the people who were desperately in need and in search of hope. Not a nice formal apology, but something that would have meat on the bones that young kids growing up in neighborhoods like I grew up in would have reasons to be optimistic and hopeful. I was a disillusioned, angry young man for parts of my childhood. To make sure that we could avoid as many of those circumstances as possible, Opportunity Zones seems to be a part of that solution. And he was honest and asking, what was it? How does it work? And after I explained it, he says, I'll support it. And the next day he did. And because of his support, the Republican Party, I think, embraced the concept that I was pushing that Cory Booker and I worked on together from a formational perspective. And then the Republican, through our tax bill, we included it in the tax bill. And because of that, in just 2019, Van, we saw almost $30 billion invested in majority-minority communities, leading to the lowest on-record level of poverty in the history of America. When we find good ideas and we work together to present those solutions, and you don't care who gets the credit, you can get things done. I think about when I had the fly-in of the HBCU presidents and chancellors. The White House called and said they wanted to invite everybody over. And one of the asks that the presidents and the chancellors had of the administration was to make the funding that they received permanent. President Trump called me uh, Then chairman of the uh, Education Committee, Lamar Alexander, asked me to champion this cause so that we could get it done. And in a bipartisan fashion, we made their funding permanent for the first time ever. They don't have to come back every year asking for the dollars because it was a part of the 10-year budget cycle. Uh, When you think about the pandemic and how it wreaked havoc around the country, just imagine in the poorest communities in rural America, black and white, that sometimes the only place you can go for a hot spot or An internet connection is at an HBCU. And so keeping those doors open and keeping them funded so that we would have the last lifeline for connectivity in a world where you were doing virtual education even. We would put a billion dollars into the HBCUs. It was the pain, by the way, Van, that really led to the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, and the reason I wanted to just give you the floor to really explain some of this stuff is because... I think in this kind of soundbite era, mm. actual accomplishments, $30 billion in one year to the community. If that was all you'd ever done in your life, people should be carrying <laughs> you around on their shoulders. Uh, it's a lot, of money. a lot of money. Um, right. And 
I think our black colleges, you know, I'm the product of parents and grandparents who went to black colleges. I got a chance to go to Yale and be a fellow at MIT and teach at Princeton. Those were not campuses that my parents or grandparents would have been allowed on the grounds of. And so it was black colleges that educated a Dr. King. It was black colleges that educated a Thurgood Marshall and Diane Nash and so many of our great heroes and, and sheroes. So to stand in the breach and to make sure that our black colleges you know, got things they had never gotten before, all these things are so important. And the reason I want to make sure to raise it is because I want people to know who you are and know your heart. Thank you, Van. And then I also know that you're in a party that has elements in it that scare the heck out of black people. Yes. So I hear that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you may have heard that. So I, I want to talk about that as well. And with, you know, with equal candor and clarity, um, it's very hard to see how the party of Lincoln uh, has someone like Steve Bannon in it. You know, how does that work? And, uh, you know, a party that includes you includes so many of these kind of white nationalist elements. And I don't see the Democratic Party has a ton of problems as well, which you and I have talked about at length and I talk about it yes. on this show. But I don't see those yeah. white nationalist elements coming into the Democratic Party I see the more vocal white nationalist elements that really scare black people moving into the Republican Party. I just, why do you think that is? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I don't have an answer for it all, and I'm not sure that I would agree with it all. I do think that in a more pronounced way, you see more conservatives who are typically white, uh, a part of the Republican construct. So perhaps by default, you would suggest that the outliers that you mentioned are more dominant in the party than they actually are. I think the truth is that it's not nearly as advertised, to be honest with you. Um, number one, number two, there have been times where whether it's Steve King and many other members of Congress that had been run out of the party because of the comments and the stance that they've taken, that the party itself having an allergic reaction disposed of those individuals. And, and I don't think that we have an, an equilibrium or an equal playing field for when it comes to our reaction to the negativity that we see. Certainly, I have had those comments uh, when I find the party does something that I think is out of step with uh, being fair and, and just and will continue to take that position. But I also say that if you look at the history of the Democrat Party versus the history of the Republican Party, I think you don't have to go back to 18-something to have that conversation. You can look at the fact that the last member of the KKK was a Democrat senator. Uh, but the truth is that he had evolved as a human being so much so that the person that preached at his funeral was Chaplain Barry Black. So the truth is that both parties have had some issues. And the question is, are you willing to address and confront those issues? And I think that's our responsibility on both sides of the aisle. But more importantly, it's our responsibility as Americans, because what's being sold today is that one side is good and the other side is bad, that one side is racist and the other side is not. There's just nothing further from the truth than that fact from a political perspective. The truth is that the human heart is is flawed, period. It's not a Republican heart or a Democrat heart that's flawed. Jeremiah 79 kind of answers that question for us. We're all flawed. And the question is, how do we address the challenges that we see? And if my responsibility as a Republican and as an African-American is to address them first in me and also then in those who are in my inner circles, my in-group. And so I do take a greater responsibility to push back against judges that were uh, were brought to the floor that I said I would reject if they had a vote in the, the Republican Party, and they, they removed those judges because they didn't have the votes without me. And that also led several of my colleagues on my side of the aisle to say, if they said, if Tim's not with this judge, I'm not going to be with them at all. So 
it's actually a position of empowerment when we work together and we are able to expose the truth to the people that are making the decisions. So I, I do think yeah. that we have work that needs to be done in this country around issues of race. And I am going to keep my shoulder to the grindstone to make sure that we continue to make progress. And I am thankful that I live in a place that's rare on earth where we are actually able to measure the progress decade by decade over the last five decades for sure. The first 190 years, I think we were carved out of opportunity too, too often and almost pervasively. Uh, well, I mean, certainly pervasively during, during slavery and segregation. Um, look, I see it a little bit differently in that yes. I'm concerned about, and, I, and again, I, I raise with you just because you do have the track record. When Steve King was saying terribly racist stuff, you were one of the main people who publicly went after him. You're one of the few Republicans who has publicly challenged you know, Trump at times where you felt that he uh, was falling short of the mark and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> like, not that that's the harder part. That's the harder part. Listen, no. That's a fact. Yeah. He's a powerful force in our party. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, if you're calling countries crap holes or if you're talking about Baltimore as a, a terrible place to live. It's my responsibility to stand up when a Republican saying that. I, I, and I do. I, I don't always enjoy the fact, but it doesn't matter whether you enjoy it or not. You just got to do what's right. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's part of the responsibility that I have put on my shoulders as uh, the highest ranking African-American on, on my side of the aisle in the country. And it affords me access as well as misery. So it's, it's one that <laughs> you just got to yeah. say I'm signing up for it all. So I'm starting to hear, you know, with crime going up and all that kind of stuff, that criminal justice reform is no longer as popular, no longer as possible. Uh, I mean, what do you say to critics who say, hey, you know, you guys start mucking around and, you know, talking about you want to you know, change policing in a positive direction. You want to do this. Now you messed it all up and you got crime going nuts. You got cops feeling sad and it's your fault. I mean, how should our movement deal with that? Well, I think, A, it would be false. Uh, B, I would say that with the First Step Act was we focused on nonviolent offenders. We focused on proper sentencing guidelines and proper sentencing. And frankly, I would say that so many of the strategies, whether or not they were well-intended or not, has led to an increase in the violence that we're seeing in our streets, has nothing to do with criminal justice reform, has everything to do with the approach that failed uh, in not providing the level of resources necessary for our law enforcement communities, law enforcement agencies to spend more time in community policing. We need to put more resources, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Biden administration is finally woken up to the reality that more money is necessary, not fewer dollars being necessary. And the $37 billion proposal that the president came out with recently to help stabilize community safety and to put more money in the uh, hands of law enforcement is a good proposal. And it's another reason why I'm still at the table working on police reform with uh, Senator Booker and so many others, because I believe that we ultimately do not have a binary choice between communities of color and law enforcement. Either you're going to help both or you're helping not neither. And so my hope is that we continue down this road that puts more resources in the pockets of our law enforcement. And at the same time, we provide them with more training around the duty to intervene that would have helped eliminate the George Floyd murder, to put more money in the ability to de-escalate a situation, that we have more co-responders to mental health episodes. There are more body-worn cameras. There are a number of things that we can do to better equip our law enforcement officers with the uncertainty that's going to present itself in front of them on a consistent basis. So everything in our power that better equips and resources law enforcement and we provide mental health 
assistance in communities, those are really good things. And those are the asks that we hear both from the community and the law enforcement agencies. As you know, Van, 80 plus percent of African Americans want the same level of policing or more police presence, not less. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, look, you know, I, I think that you say a number of things that I think are important. You know, crime's going up in places where there's been strong police and criminal justice reform, places where there hasn't been, places where there have been uh, progressive prosecutors in place, places where there hasn't been. So there's something broken. There's something, I think, deeper here. We'll keep trying to work on the criminal justice part, but I think it's a deeper problem in the country, Yes, which I, I want to talk about. Before I do that, you know, you did mention the police reform stuff. I know you've been working very hard with Karen Bass, who's now running for mayor here in Los Angeles, Cory Booker and others, but you weren't able to get that across the finish line and you actually pulled back at one point and got some criticism even from law enforcement in that. What happened with that? We, you and I never talked about that. What, yeah. what happened with that whole thing? Well, Van, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's a really important opportunity for me. But the truth is that it broke down around two very important issues. And frankly, qualified immunity was not one of the issues. It was other issues around the level of funding that I, I really had a strong position that we needed more money, not less money. And I did not agree to connect the funding to accreditation. And that was just something that I didn't agree to. And after some challenges, they decided that they'd come back at another time and look for another way around it. And Hmm. I told them that was a mistake when we left the table and it's proven to be a catastrophic occurrence. I think we can continue to negotiate in good faith on both sides and find the path forward like we're doing now. And frankly, if you look at the President Biden's executive order, it took pieces of the Justice Act that I presented three years ago And now two or three very important parts of that was included in his executive order. And Mm -hmm. I think that just is a sign that progress is available if we don't stop working. Well, look, I I, um, I hope you you continue pushing forward on it. It's really so important. And I feel that all the sloganeering around defund the police, I think what got in the media was that you thought it was going to be a defund the police bill. And the people said, hey, it wasn't going to be a defund the police bill. And so we got caught up in all the sloganeering and we never got to the details that you're talking about. Yeah, and that's a really good point, too. Uh, the slogan, defund the police, and its impact on police reform, there were 11 sections in the bill that literally said you are either no longer eligible for grants or we are going to reduce the amount of resources that are made available. Hence, the reality that we were going to drop the funding for law enforcement agencies, whether it is called to fund the police or rather it's just eliminating funding for police departments that didn't fly. And it, and it was a bitter pill to swallow, especially as crime was already on the uptick. I, I was on the floor when the filibuster was used against the Justice Act. And we had 54 votes. We needed 60 votes. Where I think we were six votes shy. One of the things I said then was that we are in for a rude awakening. And I used Ezekiel, I think it was chapter 33, verse 36, verse 3, when I said, I don't want the blood on my hands. And so I literally went to the floor of the Senate and talked about the absolute catastrophic mistake that we were making by trying to look for something that was perfect on one side and bad for the other side, as opposed to agreeing on something that was 70% where everybody wanted it. And since then, you look at the crime stats, they speak for themselves with an almost 50% increase in homicides in this country. 85% of those homicides have been African-Americans and Hispanics. That's one of the reasons why the African-American community and the Hispanic community are pushing so hard for a 
heavier presence of law enforcement. Our communities suffered the consequences of our failed efforts. And that's one of the reasons why I never left the table. I think what the Democrats were trying to do was to, to say, if you improve the way that cops treat folks, you get more money. If you refuse to improve it, you get less. So it was a conditional cutback. But your concern was that it was going to wind up being an in fact cutback because maybe some law enforcement couldn't keep up with the standard. So, yeah. But these are kind of details that I think are important. You know, in podcasts, we can, we can kind of get into a little bit. Exactly. The, the deeper question is, you know, folks are hurting and uncertain across the board in America. And crime is one element of that, how you deal with that. Police reform is, is another area. Inflation, there's a lot of different issues. And you are emerging as a national leader. You're not emerging as a congressional leader. You're not emerging as a Republican leader. You're not emerging as a black leader. You're really emerging as a national leader and somebody that people are really looking to for clarity. Yeah. And so a new set of leaders left and right, including yourself, are emerging. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Well, I just got a couple more questions. Yes, sir. I heard you speak recently at a conference, and you talked about immigration in a way that I thought was interesting. And it wasn't the way that I've heard a lot of people on the right talking about it, including you know Social Security and the youth, the, the age yes. of our workforce and that type of stuff. Because I might be talking to somebody at some point, somebody said, hey, here's Tim Scott before he was president. Here's Tim <laughs> Scott before he was vice president. How do you see immigration, which has been such a divisive issue? Well, I think what I said on the panel that I was on that I think you were in attendance, that immigration is a far more complicated issue than we give it credit for being number one. I do think that the first step that you have to take in the immigration debate is to make sure that your southern border is protected and closed. Two million illegal crossings are two million too many. But more importantly, I would say that the national security risk of a porous southern border is job one. Job one of the federal government is the national security of this country. And when you have 155 countries represented on the people who are crossing the, the southern border, that's a problem. 
when you have 20 plus people that are on some kind of a list for a threat from a terrorist perspective, that's a huge problem. When you see the fentanyl that's crossing over our border that's helped to contribute to the 107,000 Americans who've lost their lives to overdoses or drug addiction issues, that's a huge problem. And in addition to those two very important problems is the problem of illegal crossings, two million plus. So by securing our southern border, we actually open the door for the front door conversation of improving our immigration outcomes for this nation. We are the most compassionate, welcoming nation on earth. We are the home to more immigrants than any other country on earth by far. At your school, Yale, MIT, and Princeton, you've got a lot of foreign students who are becoming the best educated kids from their countries. And instead of us allowing them to stay and start their companies here, we So you're good enough to come from 18 to 22 years old, and then we kick you out to go home and start your company and compete against America. I think we can come to better conclusions than that. I also think that 40% of the folks that come into our country should come in, not because they have a four-year degree, but because they meet the needs of the workforce from a blue-collar perspective. And in both scenarios, you bring your, your spouse and your dependent children, and other loved ones can also find their path to align to get here. But the truth is that we are an aging country. Uh, over the next few years, one out of four Americans will be over the age of 65. We are not replacing ourselves with births. That means that we're going to have to figure out a a new formula for the long-term entitlement needs that we have as a country. Let me say it this way. I like math and people hate math when you do it on a podcast. So I'll try to be short with this, by the way, Van. When we started Social (laughs) Security, we had 16 people working, one person retired with a life expectancy of three years. Today, we have two people working, one person retired with a life expectancy of 15 years. Said differently, we're running out of people to work to provide the resources necessary to support the program. So we have to have some kind of reform on the front end once we figure out the back end to make sure that we are compassionately treating Americans who have a expectation of a check coming in the mail or a Medicare benefit, we have to make sure that we have solvency and a part of that solution, part of that formula has to be a front door conversation on immigration. And if we did that, I believe we would A, have more people paying into the system, B, we would have a stronger economy, and C, we'd have less competition from around the world because we're allowing the highly educated Yale graduate to stay in America and create that company. Because if you're good enough to come here for the four years, Hmm. you're probably good enough for the next four years. Uh, And I want the profit to stay here and not go to another country. The reason I want people to hear it is because that's a different tenor and tone on immigration than we hear from some parts of your party. And I think sometimes people on the left just lump everybody in the Republican Party onto the the most extreme view. And so um, I just hadn't heard a Republican speak about it in the way that that you had. And that's very different, you know, honestly, than the way that Trump spoke. Hey, do you miss Trump? Do you wish that you had him back now? I mean, you're different from him in some ways, but you also work with him in some ways. Do you miss him? Yeah. Well, listen, I I certainly miss the success that we had in the policies. I mean, (laughs) I don't have to respond to any of his tweets, so that's, that's not a bad thing, actually. But there's no doubt that I think he did a good job from a policy standpoint. And I think America had better economic success and better policy positions. And frankly, one of the things I hope that we are able to accomplish going forward is this notion that the American family should be glued together no matter what you look like. Well, look, you sound like somebody who's thinking about the higher office. I just have to say that. So you you might wind up being the, the next black president, the next vice president. How is Kamala Harris doing? How would you grade her? 
How's she doing, the most recent African-American in that high position? You know, I think being vice president is a blessing and a challenging position. There's no doubt that I don't think that the administration is doing very well on almost any topic, uh, and that's uh, unfortunate for the American people. I do think that the one thing we all have in common, especially those of us who are not involved in partisan politics, besides voting, is we want our president and our vice president, we want them to succeed. And unfortunately, when you look at the results of the administration today, there's a reason why there's been a like 20-point drop within the African-American community, even a deeper drop uh, in the Hispanic community, and voter appreciation and support for the policies and the positions and the comments coming out of the administration. And that unfortunately doesn't wear well. Uh, you look at the inflation at nine plus percent, wages went up, but unfortunately your spending power went down. You look at the fact that gas prices were two bucks a gallon, now they're over four dollars a gallon. All that stuff is depressing. <laughs> Any advice for Kamala? You, you work with her. Yeah. She's, she's vice president. You might be vice president. What would you do more of or less of if you were in that chair right now? If I was in that chair right now, I'd, I'd probably pick my issues of passion and expertise. And I would make sure that people understand what I do really well. And I'd spend some time forcing the administration to let me shine where it's natural as opposed to sending me where they don't want to go. Uh, <laughs> sometimes that's harder to do, but frankly, she works for the American people as much as she does the administration. But thinking about it, if I had that job, what I would want and what I would demand is the ability to help America grow where I've had personal experience, professional expertise, and our tremendous compassion and passion for results in those areas. Well, I, I appreciate you, Senator Scott. You are without a doubt, the best, brightest, most beautiful shining star on that side of the aisle with very few peers. I think the Jack Kemp's of the party in the past are smiling down on you. And uh, I sure hope we don't have to run anybody against you. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate that. And and you can also buy my book, America, A Redemption Story. You can buy it at any major retailer. Yes. Pick it up. And I know you got stuff. Thank you so much for this time. We'll talk again soon. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. Hey, look, I know Tim Scott personally got a chance to work with him on a bunch of those issues that we're talking about. Uh, he's a hard guy uh, not to like. As you can see, he's a very skilled politician. <laughs> he's hard to bend down on uh, issues where he, he doesn't want to get himself in any political trouble. But I want you to listen to him on both sides of the aisle and observe him as somebody who's getting ready for something. Nobody talks like that because they want to be a senator from South Carolina. Uh, You don't write a book like that because you just want to inspire your friends with anecdotes. You do something like that because you've got higher ambitions. I really wanted to make this an opportunity not to try to beat them up on all the areas where we uh, don't agree, but to give you some insight into the kind of Republican that may be on the ticket, either at the top or in, in the VP slot, very, very soon. If you are assuming that the only way Republicans are going to talk is the way you hear them talking as reflected or refracted through MSNBC or, or, or NPR, where the only time you hear Republicans is when they're saying very extreme stuff, 
you might want to take a closer look at what's going on here. Uh, you heard a very compelling case for a slightly more moderate approach to immigration. You heard somebody who could speak to racial justice issues and solutions and a track record without inflaming either side of the racial debate. You heard someone who's very fluent in the cadences of of the Bible, but isn't using them to chastise people for abortions and that sort of stuff, but actually using it to talk about lifting up people who don't have a chance. This is a different combination of uh, Republican ideas. Uh, it's a different message. It's a different messenger that can fit within and live alongside some of the stuff that people are very concerned about, but at the same time might be able to pull in folks who are looking for a political home away from Democrats. This is a gateway drug to the Republican Party, Tim Scott is, I think for a lot of potential uh, black and brown voters. I said, I like the guy, I consider him to be a friend, but as a political matter, one of the bad things that happens is when we're so isolated from each other, things that begin to evolve and change, you don't see them until it's too late. So if you're a Republican who wants to see the Republican Party uh, get better, uh, I think you should be very encouraged uh, by the rise of a, of a Tim Scott. If you're a Democrat who wants to see the Democratic Party win elections, you should be very encouraged to work a lot harder <laughs> because this guy is not going to be as easily caricatured, pushed around, or beaten as maybe other people in his party might be. So that's my view. I appreciate him coming on the Uncommon Ground podcast. Who knows, maybe someday he'll be back on with a higher office and we can play some of this stuff back to him and see be living up to his ideals once he has a bigger position. But anyway, to be continued, this is Van Jones, Uncommon Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credowell. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swinteman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen. Vanessa Reppert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hey, this is Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, where twice a week I speak to meditation teachers, top research scientists, and even the odd celebrity about how to do life better. And on a recent episode, I spoke to the huge global pop star Dua Lipa about how she does her own life. What are the non-negotiable practices and principles for her? Those are just like life things that I like to live by. Uh, never do the same job twice and never leave today's thing for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Those are really important things. The episode is uh, incredible and actually quite practical, especially when it comes to creativity. Is it true that in 
typical overachiever fashion, you wrote 97 songs for this record? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wrote 97 songs. We wrote a lot of songs, but not all of them are good. You know, that's the other thing. Like, I have to write myself into a good idea. To listen to this episode and more, follow 10% Happier on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.